0: Well good morning everybody. So uh, we are continuing on with our uh, series on apologetics Um, and I want to begin I think just uh, with some, I I told you I belong to a couple of uh, philosopher groups on Facebook and probably most of them have their college degree, a number of masters, or quite a few PhDs. So um, people will post on this group things like, uh, I mean, more complex things than this, but this is the one I'm going to take from this morning. Uh, why don't you believe in religion again exactly? And so there were 300 and 93 responses about why they don't believe, um, and so I, I want to read some of these to you, so you get a sense of what's going on, largely uh, in the world, and probably particularly in the academy, the acad- uh, you know, the university, and places like that. Uh, so here are just a few responses I want to read to you. Uh, Religion was never meant to be enforced. If you think any religion is being enforced, blame the enforcer, not the religion. Religion doesn't set out to be mis- misleading or destructive. All religions teach good, but ultimately, it's what you, as an individual, take out of it. Um, and so that's, that's a lengthy uh, uh, comment. Here's another person. As an agnostic, my answer would be a complicated one. First, I don't really believe that God needs to be the kind of entity described by any organized religion. I even suspect that such an entity might wonder what right right humans have to attribute any sort of status to such a being in the first place. Second, I have never felt a connection with God even when I attended religious services. Because of this, I don't think that it makes any difference to God if I am religious or not. I don't think that it is a test because there are numerous ways that people could live meaningful lives and contribute to society in other ways. So I guess, in essence, that's the purpose of religion to this person. So um, <laughs> so uh, only the preachers retain power and the devotees have no freedom to do their daily life. So I didn't know if you knew that about yourself, but that's what I'm trying to do to you. Um, Religion ideally serves several functions. It gives meaning and purpose to life, reinforces social unity and stability, serves as an agent of social control, promotes psychological and physical well-being, and may motivate people to work for positive social change. So a lot of those things are true, but there's a missing component there. Maybe you can figure out what that might be. Um, So let me see. I believe there is religion. I simply don't agree with it. Religion is the opiate of the masses, so said Karl Marx. Uh, because it's unfounded, manipulative BS, I could give you a list, but it's long and dependent on each cult, uh, which are many. And so this person here obviously has, you know, a uh, kind of a, a jaundiced view of the faith. And so most of the comments are, are like that in terms of why they don't believe in religion or follow religion anymore. I won't take up um, too much more of your time on that, but what I'm trying to do is raise your awareness that <clears throat> this is these ki- this kind of thinking, these kinds of thoughts are prevalent, they're Ubiquitous. They're all over the place in the culture today. Why do you to it? What's that? Why do you belong to it? Because I want to see how people are thinking. I want to understand. So I look at it as a missionary. If I'm going to go into, uh, if a missionary is going to go into the world, into a, uh, another culture, and figure out how to reach those people then he has to understand their culture, their language. He has to understand the way in which they think so that he can better uh, uh, discuss, uh, debate, uh, and uh, them in terms of what it is they believe and why it is we believe what we believe. So for me, it's just a total, it's a, I'm a missionary there. It's all I am. I'm just trying to figure them out. Uh, but by extension of that, um, most of us here in this room were raised in a world that was dominated by the Judeo-Christian worldview. Most of us here, we, when we grew up, everybody, we all understood that the Bible was God's word and, and that it was the way in which we lived our life, et cetera, et cetera. That's just no longer true in our culture. I mean, the, the, the Judeo-Christian worldview is no longer uh, a dominant part of the, the way in which people see the world on the whole. I mean, even among people who claim to be believers, it's shocking what people believe about the Bible and what they believe about God. Shocking, because it would not comport with what you believe and what you've grown to understand. It's different. So the world is just a lot more different now uh, than what it was uh, when we were, most of us, when we were younger. And (coughs) Uh, it's helpful for me to understand why they think the way they think, and it will come out in what I'm going to share with you today, I think, to a large degree. So if I'm a missionary, you're a missionary. And if you're a missionary, then it's important that you understand how the world thinks and why they think that way, even if it's erroneous, you know. So, and hopefully, some of that, again, will come out as I share with you. Uh, now, <clears throat> there is this psalm, Psalm 2. Some of you may be familiar with it. And it says this Why do the nations, now your KJV or some of your other texts would say heathen, why do the nations or unbelievers rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, it's interesting, this is a, I mean, you know, what's, what's true now has, in many respects, always been true throughout history, that there are people who uh, do not believe and who hold God uh, in contempt who plot against God and the people of God. So just this week, for example, uh, the UN, a primary actor in the UN, said that what needs to happen is that those religious faiths who cannot hold to the LGBTQ plus uh, agenda, that they simply need to change that they they really ought to be outlawed. Religions like ours, who do not hold to the... This is one of the most powerful organizations in the world. These people are conspiring to get you and me to adopt their agenda and their values. And if we won't, then we should be outlawed. So... Uh, now, I, I don't suspect that that would have ever happened in the UN 20 years ago. I think the political fallout would have been so severe that uh, it, it would have been very, it would have been untenable for them at the time. But they feel free to do that now, and if they think they have a tough time with Christians, it would be interesting to see what they would do with Muslims on this issue. There are over a billion Muslims, 40 to 60. 40 to 60% of Muslims identify as radical or extreme. So if you try to change that demographic group on this, you, you might be in for a battle, uh, literally. So here we have, I mean, we do have people in the world uh, who conspire against God. And there's a reason why they do that. And it's important for, for us to understand that reason. And to factor that in, in how we do something like evangelism or apologetics. Now, I think that there there is an operating premise regarding evangelism and apologetics that all of us should be aware of. There's an operating premise regarding evangelism and apologetics that all of us should be aware of. In other words, I think most of us take one of these three. People who willfully do not believe in the existence of God and the work of Jesus Christ, there are three reasons. There might be more, but I've identified three. Number one, the reason why they do not believe in the existence of God or the work of Jesus Christ is because they were afforded lousy Christian examples. And this this premise here has been has been dominant throughout the church for decades now that the reason why people don't believe is because of the lousy example pastors laity churches as, den- as denominations etc have presented to the world and so we haven't given them enough that's that's uh, um that's uh what's the word I'm looking for, attractive enough that that they would consider changing the way in which they believe and the way in which they live. So somebody once said something like this, I hear what you are trying to say to me, but your actions speak so loudly that what I see prevents me from hearing what you are trying to say. Does this make sense to you? Now, I need to be intellectually honest and say this is true, that there are too many of us that say one thing but do another, and the doing of what we do drowns out what it is we're trying to say. So we need to do better. And so uh, one of the great passages of scripture that I gave to all of us numerous times, and and so I'll share it again, is is, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And so we read in Galatians, for example, this really iconic passage where the Apostle Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I don't suspect that many people here have been uh, in drunken orgies or anything in recent times, but I do think that what they do see, a lot of them, are things that we say, attitudes that we have, how we treat other people. Those people, things speak very loudly. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so taking the last portion of that text and applying it to the previous text I read, We crucify sexual immorality. We crucify impurity. We crucify sensuality and idolatry and sorcery. We crucify enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. We crucify rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. We crucify envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And we replace those things with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We live our lives. So a while back, I encouraged all of you to get some kind of a plaque that have the fruits of the Spirit and to maybe put it in a prominent place in your house. And I would suggest this, that if you haven't done that, that you do that. And I have one at home that I'm trying to find the right place for it. I have a couple that I, I want to put up, but, but one of them I want to put right beside the door as I walk out. And I want to say to myself that before I leave and walk out that door, I, I touch it. I just touch it and say, I want to take this with me. So that 10 years from now, I've worn some of the paint or it looks a little dirty on part of that plaque because I've touched it so much because I want to take that with me and live my life in that way. I really think that if we as believers live our lives according to the fruit of the Spirit and we crucify those inner desires that we have, that we, we give those people who... Do not believe much more encouragement to believe, and we give those critics who want to be critical of how we believe and how we act much less ammunition to aim at us. And so our lives act then as an apologetic on behalf of the Christian faith. Number two, in terms of the premise that we have when it comes to why people either do not believe in God or they do not believe in the, in the purpose and the work of Jesus Christ. Number two, they have not had the right information about God and Christ explained to them properly. So they either haven't gotten the information from someone that they should have gotten the information from, or the information that they are getting isn't, isn't right. And I can, I can tell you that I have, I have never in the whole of my life, I have never seen... The mismanagement of the message by pastors and churches and denominations, I have never seen it to be as bad as it is today. The overwhelming message that's coming from much of the church today is that Jesus was only about social justice. I've referenced before in the past, you know, there were for a number of years ago, there were several movies that came out about the life of of Jesus Christ, and one of them was entitled Son of God. And I took a group of people from this church to see that movie at Cinemark. And it was an interesting movie, and it was well done overall, except for it was missing one thing, that throughout the whole course of the movie, there wasn't anything in that movie about how Jesus died for our sins because of our rebellious nature. There wasn't anything in that movie about it. It was only about Jesus taking on the established powers of his day who were unjust, who were not meeting the needs of the poor and the oppressed, which all of which is true. But they weren't meeting the needs of the poor because they were in rebellion to God and they had not sought forgiveness for that sin of rebellion And that's why they did what they did. And that they needed a Savior. They needed to repent of that and have their sins covered through the the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Which is why I have spent, I bet, the last seven or eight years really focusing on biblical teaching. Orthodox teaching. Moving us back to the established and historic foundations of the Christian faith. I've had, I can't tell you how many people who have come to this church, some of them are here, some of them have moved on to other places, who have said to me, I never heard this in my church before. Historically, much of the church was like, well, yeah, I've heard that at this church when I went there, and when I intended, yeah, this, this, this they're, they're like... Uh, They're validating each other, but that's less and less. And so it is incumbent upon all of us to be thoroughly taught on the foundational tenets of the Christian faith so that we have the right information. And if we have an opportunity to share, what we share is orthodox and true and right and compelling. Number three, And this is the one that gets the least press. This is the one that churches don't want to talk about anymore. There are people who will not believe in the existence of God or the purpose and work of Jesus Christ because they prefer their rebellion. To follow Jesus means to come under the lordship of Christ and they like their rebellion too much. Now, before I get into that too much, let me say this. The doctrine, the biblical doctrine of rebellion is something that has fallen on hard times and maybe even in terms of how I see it and how I've taught it here. There isn't a person in this room that between the time that you got up and where we are right now, that there was not some thought or some action that was rebellious towards God. Already in this short day, you thought something about somebody you shouldn't have thought. You did something you shouldn't have done. Maybe nothing real big, but you knew, even as you thought it or even as we did it, we shouldn't have. The Holy Spirit was speaking to us, our conscience convicted us, and we were in rebellion. So here's the thing. If we do not have an acute sense that we are rebellious, all of us, by nature, and I'm talking about believers, let alone unbelievers, but if we do not have that acute sense that we are rebellious by nature, if that acute sense is not there, nor will the sense of confession and repentance be there as well. Does this make sense to you? the greater appreciation we have for how rebellious we can be as people. There is a correlation between that and the degree to which we seek to be repentant on a daily basis and to confess our sins on a daily basis. There is a correlation there. So if we have a very light sense of our rebellious nature, just because that's, that's our fallen nature, we will have a very light sense of confession and repentance as well. Maybe, just maybe, that's one of the reasons why our church has kind of, the church has kind of lost its edge in the world in which we live. Because we're not too terribly troubled by the works of the flesh. And because we're not terribly troubled we're not terribly uh, 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 um, frustrated by that, then we don't really see the need for the fruits of the Spirit. I think there's a correlation between those two things. So, So people who willfully do not believe in the existence of God and the work of Jesus Christ because of rebellion means several things. 1. Engaging in apologetics ought always to be about right intention and proper motivation. So let me just switch here a little bit. I was just talking about our nature as believers to still have a rebellious nature. There are people in the world who are not believers, and they are not believers because they enjoy their rebellion and when you try to talk to them, right, they really have no interest, they really have no interest in you other than to convert you. So if I'm going to engage and have an apologetic conversation, discussion with somebody, I better know their motivation. If it's somebody who truly wants to know more about Christ, and I can bring to bear some very helpful um, discussion that's apologetic in nature, that will help them to understand who God is and what he's about, that's great, and I should do that. But if I engage some of these people here, who really have no interest in what I believe and why I believe that, They only have an interest in seeing if they can destroy my faith. I'm not sure I should be having a conversation with them because their motivation isn't really right for what it is that we're trying to talk about. Those who prefer to live in and practice the rebellion before God can never be trusted to discuss and debate in good faith. You can't trust them. Their only intention is to convert you, not to receive Christ through you. So somebody said the other day, we were talking about this and they said, you know, they they felt um, ill-equipped to have like an apologetic conversation with somebody. And I do believe that in most cases, in God's providence, the people that you would have an apologetic conversation with would be the kind of person that God thinks you could have an apologetic conversation with. But there are those outliers. So when I go to places like that, and I know some of them by name, (laughs) there's one guy on there, he spent a tremendous amount of time talking about how the absence of nothing is real. So I wanted to say, well, if what you say is true, then I'm just going to ignore you because you're not real, right? I mean, they wanted to talk about how nothing was a prime reality. There wasn't anything, anything beyond nothing. Then why are you debating that? Why are you arguing that? I mean, but this is the kind of thing that people do. And so they, have no, they really have no interest in having this kind of a conversation that we are having today. So if that's true, then maybe, maybe those just aren't people that I should, I should or you should have a conversation with. If their only intent is to, is to compromise or to destroy your faith, then why have that conversation? In fact, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 7-5. He said, Do not give what is holy to dogs And do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And I can promise you that's where a lot of these people are. That's exactly where they are. So any pearls of faith that I would want to share with them would be like swine trampling pearls in the mud and then and then them trying to figure out how they could tear you to pieces with what it is that you said. There are those people. And right now, they are beyond redemption because they will not come to terms with their rebellion. And look, this happens all the time in the university. In September of this year, there will be hundreds of thousands and millions of students who will enter into the university system in this country. And they will have to take introductory courses. And there are professors in most of those introductory uh, courses who will bait Christian students, 18, 17, 18, 19-year-old Christian students, about their faith. And their only goal is to destroy whatever faith they have. They are nefarious. And so I would say to that Christian student, don't debate them. Look, they've sharpened their eye teeth, in many cases, for decades against any kind of argument you could bring to bear and they will try to humiliate you in front of your fellow students. Don't debate them. You're throwing your pearls before swine. Should you pray for them? Absolutely, you should still pray for them. Should, should you still love them if they, their car breaks down on the road or whatever and you can help them? Absolutely, you should do that. But don't give to them this precious conversation and discussion because their intent isn't to be intellectually honest. Their intent is to destroy your faith. Now, the anti-Christian, the anti-Christian will use two primary methods to do this. They will use self-righteous justice and moral arguments. So, self-righteously, they will say, well, you know... How can you claim to do this, believe this when you do that, or the church does this, or God doesn't do this, or God does? And they're very, very self-righteous about it. Or they will use logical syllogisms related to the existence and nature of God. So syllogism is a premise. And from that premise, you have several kind of truth statements that you want to make and it's designed to get you to a- arrive at a certain conclusion that they want. So if you're a student in that class, they will, they will say, well, what?" A-, they will give you a premise. And you say, well, yeah, I think I can agree with that. And then they will give you several statements after that to lead you logically to the conclusion that they want you to arrive at so that you indict yourself. Or so you think. So it's like this. There was a a Greek philosopher who lived about a hundred so years after Plato, several hundred years before Christ. His name was Epicurus. This is the type of syllogism that they'll use in class. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So they'll do these kinds of things. Well, is God willing to prevent evil? Yes. But not able? Wrong. He is able then he's not omnipotent. The whole point of all of this is you are presuming God's purpose. You are imposing upon God how you think he should deal with evil, and God has his own plan about how he's going to deal with evil that just doesn't ascribe to yours. So what you have to be able to do is get in between the nuances of what these this, this premise and these statements are and challenge them. Because as soon as you go into line two or line three, <clears throat> then you're following, their, you're following their logical thought to get you to the conclusion that they've drawn. And you have to have the confidence and the ability to question their premise and each succeeding premise. But I'm saying to you, these people exist, and they exist en masse. And they are in every major institution in our, uh, in our culture. And so we have to be very careful who we choose to engage and not engage. And I'm saying to you, if their motive is nefarious, if their motive is to destroy your faith or compromise it, don't engage them. They are not worthy of the conversation. Maybe somebody else, but not you. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-20. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Some of your texts will say, frustrate. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So he's saying that there's, there are a group of people out there that are just foolish. They think they're wise, but they're foolish. They only go uh, according to what they think they see and what they know. Let me just say this to you. Do you know why in science that it's a discipline where you always question like if somebody says the science is settled, that may be true on, a very, on very few things, relatively speaking, but do you know why science is a discipline that keeps at, at, its, co- at its core, do you know why questioning is, is important? Because reason and logic are only as good as the variables that you have. if you want to arrive at the truth of this particular thing, and you need 10 variables to get to there, 10 different things that you have to add up to get to that, logically speaking, then that's, that's what you do. But if you only have 7 of the 10, and you arrive at a slightly different conclusion, you've not re- arrived at what is really true, you've only arrived at what is partially true. So the more variables that you have, that you can logically connect, you get to what is really real. That's why science questions, because the more variables they discover about a particular thing, the more fact-based, the more truthful it becomes. So when we say the science is settled, there are no more questions to be asked. That may not be true. So for years and years and years, the atom was the the smallest atomic element that there was. True? True? And then we came up with what? I mean, the science was settled. It was the atom. And then we came up with a thing called a quark. K-U-R-A-K. K-U-R-K. Now that's the smallest subatomic thing that we know that exists. And guess what? Probably 20 years from now, there'll be something else that they'll say that is the smallest some atomic particle that there is. So, uh, so when we when we have these kinds of discussions and debates, uh, there are people out there who reject the notion that God exists because they only have so many variables. Like, let me ask you this question. If I had a device that could only measure air, oxygen, let's say I have a device, and they exist, do they not? Let's say I had a device that could only measure oxygen. But based on the, that device and its ability to measure oxygen, I then concluded that water does not exist. What would you say? Does that make sense to you? That's what these people do. Because they only look at the physical world and they have dismissed the metaphysical world, the spiritual world. So the device that they use to measure oxygen is the same device that they use to measure the physical world. And therefore, because they believe that's the only device Therefore, the spiritual world cannot exist. But you and I know differently. Our experience tells us differently. We know that there is something beyond this physical world. And we engage it. And he lives in us. And I have said to people in the past many times, I would sooner doubt the existence of of you sitting before me, then I would doubt the existence of God in my heart. He is more real to me than you are as you sit in those chairs. So, I want to come up to point number two then. The percentage of unbelievers who prefer their rebellion rather than submitting to Christ is far higher than what is taught. Um, Christians give too much of the benefit of the doubt. In other words, there's really a much bigger, sizable group of people out there who don't believe in the existence of God or the purpose and work of Jesus Christ simply because the rebellion is more important to them. Point number three, rebellion is a foundational and primary doctrine of the Christian faith and must be factored in any evangelism and apologetic endeavors. So I want to spend a few minutes on the doctrine of rebellion. And I want you to understand biblically how we've gotten here. So it's a bit of a biblical survey. There's more that could be said, but I think this will be enough to get the point across. So, as a matter of principle or enumo, the Apostle Paul, citing Psalm fourteen three and Psalm fifty three one through three, the Apostle Paul in Romans three nine through eighteen says this: What are we then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So as a matter of principle, this is true. That doesn't mean that we don't do good. But all of our good is tainted by sin. So, this is a, a, a text that would speak towards what is called original sin that we are born broken, we are born depraved. Doesn't mean that we are like a, a serial killer, it just means that anything that we do that we think is good. It's still so. It, it, it's like uh, it's like uh, the you know Isaiah. You know, uh, for all of our sin is as filthy rags. All I mean, all of our goodness, all not sin, but all of our goodness is like filthy rags. It's still very tainted. So we think it's not that bad, but in comparison to the holiness of God, the the scripture says it's horrific. So, we have here in one of the most important theological books of the Bible, the Apostle Paul describing the rebellion of man and the sin associated with that rebellion. Now, that happened, this rebellion has a source, it has an origin, and that origin parallels In other words, our rebellious nature parallels the rebellious nature of our ancient enemy Satan. We read this in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who are you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, this is a text that describes the king of Babylon, but Isaiah is describing the king of Babylon and his actions in the same way. The actions of Satan were understood. So he's saying here, the king of Babylon imitated Satan, and this is what Satan did, and this is what Satan thought. This was his attitude, his mindset. So they paralleled each other in that way. So what is interesting here? Um, Oh, so then he finishes, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Well, let's just hover over the text that says, I will make myself like the most high. Then we go to Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. The king of Babylon wanted to be like God. Satan wanted to be like God and believed that he was better than God. That's our rebellion. That's the origin of rebellion. No one does good. No, not one. Why? Because our rebellion is rooted in and parallels the rebellion of Satan himself. Because at the root of it, In many respects, we want to be like God. If you were to ask of me, what do you think the primary sin is in the life of a a person? I would say I think that there are three that interplay with each other. Selfishness, which means I want what I want, even if it hurts you in me getting what I want. Pride. I deserve what I want more than you deserve what you want. So I'm going to exercise selfishness to get what I want. Power. I will use whatever I can and leverage whatever I can to get what I want because I want it and because I believe that I deserve it more than you deserve it. And there isn't a human being in the world that doesn't do those kinds of things in their life, if they're honest with themselves. Maybe not daily, maybe not in an overt sense, but it's all there. And you may think, well, this isn't very encouraging. Well, here's the encouraging thing, that Jesus Christ still chooses to love us even though we're that way. That Jesus Christ chose to take all of that on him and be punished because of that instead of us that we could really be, remember what I've said in the past, most of us who are virtuous are not virtuous because that's who we really are. We are virtuous because we've lacked the opportunity to do otherwise. And you think, well, that's not very nice. Test it in history. Give people power they never had before and see what happens. It's not pretty. And you would think, well, I would have never believed that person was capable of that thing. I'm telling you, there were a plethora, a myriad of examples throughout the course of history where that is true. So remember this Satan is a master theologian. He's talked to God, interacted with God, believes in God's existence and knows more about God's attributes and abilities than most. And yet Satan doesn't love God. Knowledge about God doesn't equal faith in God. So just because we know about God doesn't mean that we'll change. We don't because we're rebellious. The reason why many of us have come to faith in Jesus Christ years and years ago, And the reason why we don't look more like Jesus than what we do is because we haven't wanted to give up certain things that He's wanted us to give up to become more like Him. That's what it is, if we're honest. And yet, Jesus Christ still loves us, still wants us, His blood still covers us, we are still precious in His eyes. If we don't see the seriousness of our rebellion, then we diminish the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I mean, why would Jesus Christ die on the cross if we're just okay? If we're not all that bad? Why would Jesus Christ suffer punishment from the father? If we're, if we just make mistakes. No. Jesus Christ did all that because of the severity of our condition and our rebellious nature. And we should, we should celebrate that. We should rejoice in that. We should have confidence in that. And if there are people out there who, in their rebellious nature, because they love it, who aren't willing to hear that message, who only want to destroy what is precious to us in regard to that, then we are casting our pearls before swine. And we can't do that. So, just to wrap it up then, The world needs salient, potent Christian examples, Christians who practice the fruits of the Spirit. The world needs, and when that happens, we exercise our apologetics to help those people come along. And the world needs Christians who are informed and thoughtful, who are orthodox, in their their biblical faith. The world needs that. And we bring to bear then as we share from the richness and abundance of what we know about God into the lives of people who he brings to us that we can share the gospel with. But the world also contains people who don't really care, who don't wanna know in a very insidious fashion They just want to destroy what you love. Because if you become like them, then you validate what they believe. So don't engage them. Hold on to your pearls and only give them to people that really want to know.